Welcome to the JND podcast, the preeminent podcast on inherited metabolic disease, or at least the leader in a field of one. I'm James Nurse, the journal's social media editor, and every fortnight I invite one or more of our wonderful authors to take me through their recent publications. We've a vast back catalogue covering a multitude of topics in the field of inborn errors in metabolism, so be sure to check that out, but not before our latest instalment on hepatic presentations of mitochondrial depletion syndromes. Regular listeners will know that I'm a general paediatrician who finds himself presenting a podcast on metabolic disease through happenstance and good fortune. To date, I like to think I've made friends with my guests, but it's the first time one of my guests has been a friend, or at least I like to call her that, and someone I've worked with again and again throughout my training. And, and now she's my advice on the end of a phone whenever I need help. Dr. Roshni Vara is a consultant in metabolic medicine at the Evelina Children's Hospital, and she also works with the Paediatric Liver, Gastroenterology and Nutrition Centre at King's College Hospital in London. And she's joining me today to discuss the recent paper, Hepatic Presentations of Mitochondrial DNA Depletion Syndrome in Children a single tertiary liver centre experience. Roshnik, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you, James, and thank you for inviting me to do this. It's unusual. I'll give it a go. Well, hopefully unusual, but not unpleasant. Inevitably, we talk a lot about mitochondrial disease on the podcast, and we know that the term mitochondrial disorders covers a pretty broad church. Mm. Conditions affecting any system at any age with all modes of inheritance. Mm. This work specifically looks at the mitochondrial DNA depletion syndromes. So what sets those apart? Well, we chose to present or talk about mitochondrial depletion syndromes because they remain a heterogeneous group, and they're classically grouped into cohorts that can present with a myopathic form, an encephalomyopathic form and a hepatocerebral form, which is obviously where my experience or our experience comes. And they are secondary to mutations within nuclear DNA. So they're a group that results in um, significant reduction in mitochondrial DNA within cells and cells in organs requiring high energy production. So the liver is a classical organ involved in mitochondrial disease, but this specific subtype of mitochondrial disease has kind of involved a lot of children presenting um, to the liver service. Um, so we chose to look at this particular group because a common presentation is acute liver failure. And we thought we had a fairly large number compared to previous reports in the literature. Well, you, so you said you had quite a big cohort. So what specific diagnoses are we talking about within there? So specific genes, are particularly common in this cohort, are mutations in DGOK, PolG, um, and MPV17, and also Twinkle, but we haven't found any of those in our cohort. Just over time, our ability to make a genetic diagnosis for this group has improved, as it has across the board for many genetic syndromes. So that's why we chose to look and see if we could find any commonalities, I guess, in this cohort. So with this, as you mentioned, the group that you were looking at was probably quite large compared to what we've seen in the literature to date. Were there any consistent findings from your work? Again, difficult because it ran from 2002 to 2019. And we did discuss um, in the paper that obviously workup for acute liver failure has changed over that time. So investigations differed. So the earlier they had presented, a lot of those had had muscle biopsies, but the later presenting ones, we, we tended not to do muscle biopsies anymore. So in terms of investigations, it was quite variable across the board. I wasn't really able to pin down if lactic acidosis was a specific common feature to this particular group. So I wasn't able to 
give a specific level because that's often what people ask. And obviously, as you know, acute liver failure itself causes a lactic acidosis. So again, difficult to decipher. I think a common finding was that acute liver failure was a common presentation, which we know. And obviously, mortality was high. So 17 out of the 24 patients died. So that just tells you that mortality remains high in this group, particularly in the DGOK group where all of the babies died early on. So we concluded from that that if you knew the diagnosis, this wasn't an indication for transplant. However, it has been reported in the literature, but I know we'll go on to perhaps speak about transplant. Yeah, indeed. So you've mentioned that this is a, a group with a high level of mortality, but we hope that there is some role for rescue from transplantation. Uh, and you did certainly find mm. there was one group of patients where there could be a role for transplant. Is that right? Yeah, this was a, an interesting side cohort and one of the kind of main reasons why we looked at them. So in the MPV17 group, again, a common presentation in this group was acute liver failure in, in infancy, but in a particular subset. So one was an index case that was transplanted and we knew he had a complex deficiency back then. So it was many years ago. I think you were probably my junior back then. Um, but he presented as a, an acute liver failure, but resolved, but had chronic liver disease in the background and then decompensated again. And at that point, we had normal brain imaging, normal EEG, so no evidence of neurological involvement at all. So the decision was to transplant him. So then 15 years on, he's completely well, doing very well from his transplant, had a 10-year-old sibling at the time who again presented with chronic liver disease that decompensated and he actually had evidence of hepatocellular carcinoma. So we did an MRI scan for the sibling and he had quite a widespread leukodystrophy, but clinically no neurology. So we had many debates within the multidisciplinary team as to whether we should go ahead and transplant. So at this point, we knew the diagnosis, the genetic diagnosis for the sibling had come back as these mutations in MPV17. We went back to look at his older sibling who also had the same mutations. And by that point was also developing some leukodystrophy on his MRI findings. However, we went ahead, transplanted them both. And actually, despite some mild neurology in the older sibling, the younger siblings actually doing very well. So I think we made the right decision. Obviously, there's so many conditions we haven't covered in the podcast. But what you saw within that group with MPV17, were your findings characteristic of what is already known about this disorder? So actually, more recently, yes. So there was a Japanese group, as we mentioned in our discussion, that had reported children with mutations in MPV17 that had presented with a hepatocerebral form. So it's slightly different in terms of it seemed less severe in these specific children. And again, they reported the same and showed that liver transplantation was successful in a cohort of their patients. So I think it has changed over time. I don't know if the phenotype's changed or our ability, to, I guess, to offer transplantation to this particular group has changed. You've obviously alluded to the time when I was your junior, and I certainly recall from when we worked both of us together at King's that when you've got a child presenting an acute liver failure, you're looking to make a diagnosis quickly, especially if transplantation is becoming your only option. We know that sometimes diagnosing mitochondrial disease can be slow, even at the best of times. There is that necessity to know whether transplant is going to be a viable option, especially given the pressures on livers, but also you know the, the people who might need to donate them. Are there any clues as to when liver failure is caused by mitochondrial disease? That's, I guess that's our difficulty and remains a difficulty. So again, as I said before, I don't think lactate has been particularly helpful 
it doesn't really indicate if it's mitochondrial disorder or not. We have seen that if there is early onset of neurological involvement, so evidence of seizures or um, nystagmus, particularly in the DGOK group, then again, really a contraindication to transplantation if, if it's being considered in a neonate with acute liver failure. And in terms of rapid diagnosis, again, like as I said, the workups changed over time in that currently they are able to turn over those common nuclear DNA mutations fairly quickly. So within a week or two, they can have those results back. But really two weeks in the life of a neonate with acute liver failure is a long time. So I think if they can be as certain as they can that there is no neurological involvement, we've tried to exclude everything else. You know, sometimes urine organic acids can give you a clue with some mitochondrial metabolites. There may be some soft markers, but ultimately, if it's a neonate that doesn't have an obvious diagnosis that contraindicates transplant, then it would have to go ahead. And I, I think that's an unavoidable situation until genetic diagnosis becomes much more rapid, as in within 24 to 48 hours. Well, we know they've certainly shown it can be done, but um, given given that some of our whole genomes are taking a year right now, I'm not going <laughs> to... I'll settle for a fortnight. Um, it's a paper that took a long time to write. What would be your kind of takeaway? Um, it was interesting in terms of collecting the data because it was extremely variable. I mean, it was quite challenging. I, I must say probably um, Professor Hadgett's not impressed because I think this paper took me about 20 years to write because of collecting this variability of data, trying to get genetic results trying to get muscle biopsy results. But I hope we've presented a kind of relatively comprehensive cohort and come out with some useful conclusions, I guess, for the metabolic and hepatology community in terms of trying to decide who and when to transplant. And like I said, we had you know, a lot of debate around the child with the hepatocellular carcinoma with a known diagnosis of a mitochondrial disease, but we still went ahead and that was probably now five or six years ago we transplanted him and he's doing well you know he has a good quality of life so I think we did the right thing but ultimately it will always be tailored on an individual patient basis and discussion amongst various specialties and specialists can only lead to a good outcome for children. Very good if you'd like to read the paper I would encourage you to click on the link in the podcast description or go to the journal web pages and search for Hippratic presentations of mitochondrial depletion syndromes. Roshni it's pleasing to know that I can call on you both for advice but also when I need you to do a podcast. Always thank you very much James thanks for the invitation. And thank you for listening until next time goodbye. 